0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. So today's scripture is from Acts 28, verses 11 to 31. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage." And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case." But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all bonus and without hindrance. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith.
1: And thank you, Charlene. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you today. Welcome to RHC. Uh, Rainy, thanks for leading us in those songs of worship. Uh, that last song was a new song by City Alight. And some of you may know that City Alight, we're bringing them to Singapore in about a month's time, I think, somewhere around there. I think there are a few tickets left, and so if you want to look up those, you can. It's going to be a wonderful evening of worship. Also, yes, thank you to uh, Charlene, who thanks Jake. Isn't it wonderful that our treasurer is also teaching kidsmen at the same time? Um, I really love the servant-heartedness and how every role is seen as valuable. And Patrick, no pressure on you to uh, start doing kidsmen (laughs) wherever you are. uh, There you are. All right. So, friends, here we have arrived at the end of the book of Acts, the end of a long journey. Let me ask you uh, this morning, if you were Luke writing this uh, account, this orderly account of everything that Jesus began to do and teach, and you were thinking about how to conclude this letter that documents the beginning of the church, how would you end the book of Acts? What kind of a dramatic ending Uh, would you want to leave with readers of the book? What kind of a happily ever after conclusion would you maybe think would be appropriate or would be encouraging for Christians? Maybe something like Nero, the emperor coming to faith? The Jews accepting Paul finally? Or maybe as Paul finally gets to Rome, there's revival breaking out in Rome, just like in Nineveh when Jonah preached and the whole city fell to their knees and repented. Well, actually, Acts ends, friends, with a great paradox. A paradox uh, is two things that seem contradictory. Like when I was young and I discovered that you could get burnt by dry ice. I didn't understand how that could work, but apparently it's true. Or like someone I know in another country who was unwell and was admitted to hospital and then contracted a superbug and has now been left with a debilitating illness for many years as a result of that in a place that they should have been safe. The book of Acts ends with a kind of paradox. It's trying to show us that the kingdom of God often advances paradoxically, not in fact with many dramatic encounters, but many mostly very ordinary moments. That's how Acts ends as well. A paradox of the gospel advancing and going forward while Paul himself is under house arrest in Rome. Verse 31 tells us that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is a very undramatic end to the book. The theme of Acts up until now has been God giving his people power to be his witnesses. But this witnessing has happened in strange ways. Some through persecution, through much rejection, and suffering. And here we see an act, a very undramatic uh, way of it ending. Paul is in chains, he's under house arrest, and yet, yet, the gospel is advancing and going forward. Now, as I speak to many people, some of you, Christians often share how they live with a kind of low-level sense of guilt, feeling they should do more for God. I wonder if any of you ever have felt that way you wish you could be more effective for your savior or for the faith maybe have a more dramatic impact i want you to take courage this morning that acts doesn't end in triumph and i think part of the reason that luke does that is that if it did end with some dramatic story or in some great triumphalistic end we would be continually prone to compare ourselves to it and feel very discouraged rather acts ends very realistically it ends in a very realistic manner to encourage all of us in our lives. So, in today's passage, we are going to see how the text essentially is broken into three sections. Uh, verse 11 to 16, 17 through to 20, uh, 28, and then our last two verses. And these three scenes are going to show us three paradoxes that I trust will give us courage for gospel progress regardless of our circumstances today. So let's look at uh, verse 11. Our first paradox is that the great apostle is encouraged by ordinary believers. So let's have a look. After being in Malta for three months, Paul sets sail in verse 11, and verse 11 and 12 show us as Paul continues on his journey. And eventually, verse 13 shows us he arrives, uh, and verse 14, at a place called Puteoli, and uh, that is modern-day Naples. So if you've ever been to Italy and you've been to Naples, That's where Paul put in. He was on his way to Rome. And verse 14 shows us, there at Naples, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for a couple of days. Friends, here Paul is on the far side of the world. Paul is going to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel and testify to Caesar. And Paul is greeted by Christians who are already there. The gospel has already reached where Paul himself has not even been able to reach himself. In verse 15, it says, Paul then comes to Rome. It seems very undramatic, and so we came to Rome. And there, a whole bunch of brothers uh, travel 70 kilometers, Christians in Rome, who come out to meet Paul there. And they come and meet him and give him some kind of a welcoming committee. Some of us may wonder, how exactly did this church in Rome begin? And if you turn to Acts, you don't have to turn, but I'll tell you in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, uh, at the day of Pentecost... When the Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem, it tells us that there were visitors from Rome there. Basically, Jews had come from all over the world to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, and there the Spirit was poured out, was poured out and Peter preaches, and people are converted. And so these visitors go back to Rome, and a church gets started there, and so Paul writes the letter to the Romans before Acts 28 happens, and there are believers there for Paul already. And what we notice is that this great apostle Paul finds himself here being encouraged by these ordinary believers. It says, uh, and Paul took much courage from them. Paul meets them and takes courage. What is going on here? Friends, what we're seeing in Acts is that God is advancing and has propelled the gospel, both through Pentecost and through persecution. Think about Philip, an ordinary believer in Acts 8, scattered because of the persecution, and he comes across some people, preaches the gospel, a church gets planted there. He's uh, praying one day, the spirit leads him to go to a chariot and draw up to a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch there. He shares the gospel, the gospel then, history tells us, begins to spread to Ethiopia. Friends, the gospel spreads through ordinary people and ordinary moments right throughout the book of Acts. In other words, the gospel is not only advancing here through large apostles, through Paul and these dramatic encounters but simply visitors to Jerusalem. One Pentecost in AD 33. And the passage shows us that the the faith, the travel, the hospitality of these visitors puts courage into Paul. How many of you read through the book of Acts and think that Paul must have needed much courage? I don't know exactly how you read Paul. Some of us look at Paul when I was uh, younger. I thought Paul was this like crazy... um, I don't even know how to describe him. He, I mean, he was like Rambo and MacGyver, and he was just this like the, the toughest of the tough guys, right? Um, and nothing could get him down. He, he just kind of kept going through any circumstance. But actually, the book of Acts shows us that Paul, in fact, 2 Corinthians shows us that Paul often preached with a sense of weakness and trepidation and fear. And yet God encourages him. And one of the ways that God does that here is through the life of ordinary believers. Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote a very powerful chapter many years ago, which was called No Little People, No Little Places. And his chapter is about how God's kingdom advances through, uh, through ordinary people. And he essentially says there's no such thing as little people in God's kingdom. humble folks who trust Jesus and want to serve him. God advances his kingdom through them. There are no such things as little places. There are no areas that God does not care about and see and know and love. We see here in this passage, there are no little actions. These believers who are living in Naples, they simply welcome Paul and by their hospitality and those in Rome, Paul finds himself encouraged by these people. Friends, nearly 15 years ago, RHC began. You look at our church now with church plants and our three congregations and everyone who's here today, and think of the weddings that happened yesterday and 250 people that grow in the word uh, yesterday being trained to read First Samuel before our series on First Samuel coming up, and our prayer and worship night, and all the conversations and the encouragement. In some ways, RHC feels a little bit like a forest that's grown with all these different trees and, and vines. A rich forest with much life in it. But this forest, friends, started as many, many little, little seeds. Little seeds that have just slowly grown little by little in very undramatic ways over 15 years. We haven't had any dramatic miracles. I mean, God's intervened and done some wonderful things. But there have been no real dramatic moments. But it's seeds of sharing the gospel with people, inviting friends, praying for a CG mate, meeting up with someone and opening the Bible and reading a passage together and applying it to one another and praying. This church was encouraged by someone who came up to Taryn and I 16 years ago and said they were praying and they saw a picture of a map with Singapore in that region of the world and said they didn't know if it meant anything to us, but they felt like God was calling us to that part of the world. That little prayer, that encouragement, that vision, just helped to confirm what we were feeling and praying. I think about Les Than Mel sitting here this morning, just arriving to the first ever service at RHC 15 years ago, just getting involved, serving, leading worship in the early years. Next Sunday, I think they're leading worship in third congregation, even though they're here, because there's a gap, and Life Stage allows them to be able to serve that way. Or another person who arrived first Sunday, 30th of November, 2008, had read up a little bit about us on the website. We'd never even had a public service yet, but arrived, gave $1,000 to the church, saying, I've read, been praying for something like this. I believe in this. May God be with you. Well, the church in Singapore, a small church, 30 or 40 people that heard we were coming and said, we'll provide legal cover for you for your first couple of months until you get registered yourself or people that have come through the church over the years. I think of one dear woman, I won't tell you her name. She had quite different ideas to uh, what we were trying to do as a church, but she loved Jesus so much, and she was a prayer. And those years, she prayed and prayed for me and for our church. Friends, who knows what's, what rewards are gonna be handed out on years like that, where someone who never, as I'm aware, took the microphone on a Sunday ever, and yet has helped her build. I think of Jess Lovelet or Joy Lee, these sisters who have also both moved on from Singapore over the years, who Taryn and I knew, they were, they were prayers. Friends, this church is a picture of God planting little seeds in hearts and slowly seeing them grow, opening homes and hospitality and travel and sharing the gospel and bedtime prayers and prayers of intercession. Paul here, friends, This great apostle is encouraged by these very ordinary believers. Can I encourage us to not think of our role or what we do as being small or insignificant? This is how the kingdom advances. This is how the gospel goes forward. The second paradox we see is that the rejection of some leads to the acceptance of many. I need you to concentrate a little bit, a little bit complicated as we explain about the Jews here, but let's see what happens. Verse 16, it says, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And then, verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. So, it says, They've arrived at Rome verse 17 says Paul spends three days in Rome. We don't know exactly what he's doing, but he's likely getting settled. Probably went down to Achaia a few times. Um, If you've gone to Achaia, you know you have to do multiple trips again and again. And uh, Paul spends time with the believers there. And then one of the first things Paul does after three days is he calls together the Jewish leaders to address them. Why does Paul do this? There's been running all the way through Acts, uh, a running tension between the Jews and the Christians in Acts. The, the Jews are by and large, not entirely, but by and large rejecting the gospel, rejecting Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And in fact, Paul is in chains because the Jews have accused him of a whole bunch of things. That's why Paul is in chains. The Jews, or Paul is aware that the Jewish uh, Jews think that Paul is opposed to their faith. He's trying to undermine their faith. And Paul's worried that when he gets to Rome, these Jews would have heard about him and that they're going to be against him as well. And so Paul gathers them, and he's trying to explain to them that this gospel that he's preaching of Jesus' death and his resurrection, this is not opposed to the Jews, but this is for them. This is in fulfillment of everything that they have believed. And Paul is trying to demonstrate to them his great commitment To the Jewish people. And so we see this coming through in what he says to them. We'll just put up a couple of verses, verse 18, 19, 20. Paul says, I have done nothing against our people, or I have no charge to bring against my nation. I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul is trying to show them he is not opposed to them and what they believe, but he is for them entirely. He summarizes his ministry, as verse 20 says, as being for the hope of Israel. Now, let's think about this. Why, what was the Jewish hope, and why does Paul explain his ministry this way? Friends, remember at this time, the, the Jewish nation was oppressed by the Romans. They were ruling that entire uh, region of geography. Uh, and I mean, that's why Paul has to go ultimately when he appeals to the highest, like, supreme court, he goes to Rome. That's where Caesar is. Caesar is over all of these areas, including all of Israel. And so Israel, the promised people of God, found themselves dominated by another nation. They felt like God's promises had fallen to the ground. But there were all these Old Testament promises that God would deliver them, make them to be a strong people, and God's kingdom would come to bear. And they they interpreted and anticipated this as being that there would be a military leader some kind of a strong power who would throw off those Romans and reestablish them under their own rule and autonomy. So when Paul comes and says, the Messiah has come, but the Messiah dies a bloody death on a Roman cross, that could not have been further from their expectations. When the Messiah rises again and Paul says, our Messiah has, has risen, He's bringing his kingdom in the hearts of men and women around the world. And he will come back again. The Jews said, that's not what we signed up for. We want to get these Romans out of here. We want freedom. We want our circumstances to change. And the offense of the cross, the weakness of the cross, the patheticness of of the the Messiah being crucified naked on on a Roman cross, this was not what they were looking for. And so... Because they wanted a Messiah to defeat all of their enemies out there, the Romans, rather than a crucified Savior who would kill the enemy of sin in their own hearts, they rejected this. The Jews, friends, are rejecting the gospel because they rejected, they're rejecting the rejected Savior, Jesus. The Jews wanted, like many of us, a far more dramatic Savior and a far more flashy deliverance. Maybe I can pause here for a moment. What exactly are you asking and expecting God to do in your heart and life? Friends, the scriptures say God promises to take care of us. He promises to provide for us. He makes outrageous and incredible promises. But whilst He promises to care for us, He does not promise great prosperity or or wealth He does not even promise that if we simply believe in him, all of our circumstances will magically come right. All of our problems will disappear. If we were to use God in that kind of a way, simply to get what we wanted right here and now, who ultimately would be the most important being in the universe? God would be a servant of us to get what we ultimately want. Friends, in the gospel, God comes to deal with the problems that are deeper than the ones that we often realize we have. That is our sin. And God comes to bring us into a kingdom that will be eternal when he returns. The Jews can't see this. And as a result, they reject the faith. But Paul wants the Jews to know that Christ is the fulfillment of their belief, not a contradiction to it. And so Paul preaches to them. Verse 23 and verse 24, it says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. That's the Jewish scriptures. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Friends, some believe, and some don't, rejecting the message. Now, friends, let's think about this. How does Paul handle this rejection of the gospel by the Jews? Romans 11 tells us that Paul, Jewish himself, The Jew of Jews, he writes elsewhere, is so grieved, is so grieved by the Jewish rejection of the gospel that he weeps. And he even says he wishes he could be cut off from the faith if possible that his being cut off may allow the other Jews to be grafted in. Paul longs for his fellow uh, um, Israelites to believe in Jesus. And yet Paul takes, in this passage, comfort in God's mysterious providence. Look at verse 25b. It says, After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And Paul then goes on to cite Isaiah 6, where God tells Isaiah that the Jews are hardened and are not going to receive his preaching. Friends, this is a, a challenging passage. Isaiah sees the king in glory, And God wants to commission him to his people. And Isaiah says, here I am. I will go. I will proclaim to your people, Lord. And God says, they are going to see but not perceive. They're going to hear but they're going to listen but not hear. They are, their hearts have become hardened. And they reject the message. But verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 6 shows us there is a glimpse of hope. One day a stump will come. One day a stump, like a little root in the ground. And that stump, Isaiah shows us, is Jesus. And one day a stump is going to grow. Jesus is going to be the true Israel. And everyone who puts their faith in him will come to know God. Friends, true softness of heart is openness to Jesus. True softness of heart is recognizing your own need. True softness of heart is seeing your need for a Savior. And the passage tells us, and Paul shows us here, that many Jews who take pride in their nation and their heritage will not think they need a Savior, and they will reject the Savior. And as a result, the Gentiles will see, and will see their need for Him, and will come in. In God's strange providence, friends, the Jewish rejection of the gospel, Paul says in verse 28 will mean that the door is going to be flung wide open to the Gentiles. Paul says this in Romans chapter 11. And Paul says there that one day, once all the fullness of the Gentiles, that's you and I, are going to come in, the Jews will open their eyes and they will come in too. We are waiting and longing for that day. But in God's mysterious providence, worldwide blessing of millions, friends, millions and hundreds of millions of Gentiles around the world that worship God today, are somehow a part of God's sovereign plan as his people, the Jews, by and large, turn their backs on him now. Friends, God's providence here is mysterious, but in God's paradoxical working, God's mysterious nature is gonna result in far more Gentiles being gathered in. The rejection of some leads to acceptance of others. This is mysterious, but it's ultimately good. Friends, I want to make one or two comments here about the hardness of heart, about soil that we can labor in. This passage shows us that there are mysterious forces at work and that God, in many ways, works sovereignly and graciously to open eyes to see his gospel. We do not understand how all of these mysteries work. But when we look around us, we see there are some regions and places in the world where it seems like the work of the gospel is speeding ahead. People are responsive and soft of heart and their baptisms happening. And there are places, friends, where it seems hard and dry and difficult. And God calls Christians to labor in all different kinds of fields, all different kinds of fields. And in our family of churches, we have, I mean, churches in Australia and Hong Kong and people exploring in Vietnam and Philippines, but we have a few churches in India and in Japan. And friends, the ground in those countries is very, very hard. It's very, very hard. You have people laboring, working, preaching, discipling, maybe seeing one baptism a year, celebrating over just one person who comes to Christ. Churches that are small, are not able to give finance updates like we gave this morning, are struggling month to month, needing gospel workers, friends. And in these places, men and women labor faithfully for Jesus. They pray, they preach, they serve, they disciple, they evangelize, and it seems like there's not the kind of scale of fruitfulness that we may see here. Friends, we are to remind ourselves, passages like this remind us that in God's strange providence, Different fields are responsive at different times. We pray that those countries and those places would become responsive to Jesus and to the gospel, but we do not look down upon that and and minimize it or dismiss the labor of those brothers and sisters there. But if anything, friends, as Jesus taught us in the gospels to whom much is given, like us at RHC and in Singapore, from them much is required. And therefore, friends, we should lend our prayers and our finances and our encouragement to brothers and sisters that labor in fields like that. And I think a a related point for us is, friends, we do live in a nation and we do live in a church where God is at work. And this is not, friends, because of excellence or giftedness or things that we do. This is part of God's sovereign goodness. And we are not, friends, to take this for granted. We live in a place where Friends, we hear stories all the time of people coming to faith. That prayer meeting on Friday night and t- introducing myself to someone I didn't know. And she was just, she was just looking at me stunned, saying, you oh, know, that's the person that I'm with. And she's like, they were baptized last Sunday at RHC. And they were like, if, if, I, if I could tell you a few years ago, I would never have comprehended that we'd be here, like at a prayer and worship night, worshiping God together. He'd believe in Jesus and be baptized. But God has been at work. And friends, stories like this happen all the time. Can I encourage us as a church to be encouraged by what God is doing, but not to take it for granted? And one of the ways we do not take this for granted is by thanking God for his graciousness in our nation and in our church, and then making the most of it. If you're in a field where it's fertile, man, then you just want to plant as much as you can. You want to sow as many seeds as you can. And you want to just get as much of a harvest as as we can. And God is at work. Friends, who knows? 10, 20 years, 30 years, 3 years. The season may change. We as a church, as a nation, we may enter into a time and a season where it's very hard for Christians. Let's, Let's be faithful. Paul here, friends, knows the hardness of Jewish believers. He wants to turn himself toward the Gentiles, but he does not give up on the Jews. He prays for them. He keeps preaching. And we see people do come to faith. It says in our text, some believed, some believed. It was hard, but some came in. And so like Paul, friends, whilst we we weep and grieve for those whose hearts are hard, we rejoice that God is always still at work and can even be at work in the hardest circumstances with the hardest people. And let's see. How Paul then does that in our final point today. Our final paradox, the message advances despite the messenger being in chains. Look at these last two verses of how the book of Acts ends. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Friends, the book of Acts ends with Paul in chains, under house house arrest, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the amazing irony here is that Acts ends with Paul in chains, and yet, even in prison, under house arrest, Paul demonstrates that God's word is not chained and is not bound. This, in fact, is exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to him, let's put up our, our slide. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not chained. Paul says, the paradox, I am here, this great apostle, I am in chains. The word of God is not chained. And how is the word of God not bound? Paul here specifically cites Jesus, risen from the dead. In other words, friends, chains, grave clothes. Tombs, they mean nothing to God because the Spirit is at work to revive and to make alive and to bring life out of death. And Jesus himself has broken through the chain of death, and therefore chains mean nothing. And in fact, Paul says in Philippians 1 that his chains have actually served to advance the gospel. Look at what he says. Uh, sorry, it's not going to come up on the slide. But let me read it for you. Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, What's happened to me, this is Paul writing in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. How have Paul's chains advanced the gospel? Through Paul's preaching in prison, through Paul's writing, his penning letters, and through Paul's prayers. Now, friends, I, we're going to wrap up sharing these three things briefly, because I want you to know this morning that regardless of your circumstances or where you're at in life, maybe you've just given birth to a child, you're stuck at home, your whole world is like consumed with being a new mom, and you think, I'm kind of taken out of action, and I'm not able to be effective for God, maybe like Paul would have felt in in prison in chains. No, I want you to know, I want you to look at Paul's life and his ministry and see what he does. Though Paul's in chains, the gospel advances through Paul's preaching, his writing, and his prayers. This passage tells, uh, the previous passage tells us that Paul was preaching. He ends preaching. Now, friends, I want you to think about this. Paul is under house arrest. How many people is Paul preaching to under house arrest? Not very many. Philippians chapter one says, Through my chains, the whole palace guard, the whole palace guard has come to hear the gospel. How can that be the case? Let me tell you how it's the case. When these people were put under house arrest, they, were, they would often have one or two, often two soldiers assigned to them who were guarding them and watching them. And these guys are obviously on rotation. And Paul spends time in Rome. And what does Paul do? Every single God that comes past them, he preaches the gospel to. Every single one. He just keeps preaching. Whoever he's in contact with, it's only one or two. We can think the book of Acts ends with Paul preaching to great crowds and sharing the gospel. No, he's under house arrest. He can maybe have a few visitors, but he's got one or two guards who are watching him, and he just faithfully preaches. So that Paul will say again in Philippians 1, writing from prison, through my imprisonment, the whole palace guard has come to hear the gospel. Friends, it's not dramatic. Paul is just faithful with the ones and the twos. Very small groups. In fact, from Paul's imprisonment, we know of one convert that uh, did come to faith. We're not exactly sure if it was when Paul was imprisoned here or early on in his journey, but there's a whole letter written about that one convert. Do you know what his name is? I mean, you may think God sends Paul to go and preach before Caesar, and he's obviously called to the high and the mighty, but the book of Philemon is the story where Paul writes a letter to a slave owner's master. The slave, his name is Onesimus. His master is Philemon. And Paul writes him a letter, a one-chapter letter, to tell him, in my imprisonment, I came to meet Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from Philemon because he had likely stolen from him. So he's a prisoner, a slave, and he's on the run. And this man, Paul comes into contact with, and Paul preaches the gospel. And Paul says to Philemon, he left you, but maybe he left you so that he can come back to you no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother, because he's now come to faith. Friends, Paul preaches to everyone he can, the ones and the twos. And our Bible is filled with stories like this. Secondly, penning, Paul writes letters, not only letters like to Philemon, but the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the F- Philippians. Paul, God uses Paul's imprisonment to get him to write letters that we use today. Friends, I don't think that Paul uh, likely knew that he was, uh, well, let me not say that. Paul was just, whether or not Paul knew he was, uh, this was going to end up in the canon is uh, a debatable point. It's unlikely that He knew. But what we do know is Paul was just writing letters to encourage these believers. And Paul in prison, friends, now becomes a means of grace that God uses for all of us to be encouraged. I wonder if I should ask by raise of hands, how many of you read either Colossians, Philippians, or Ephesians this morning in your devotions? Don't raise your hands. But if you did, here we are this morning, this church being edified by what Paul wrote in prison. And Paul encourages, Paul writes, friends, Paul writes. Friends, sometimes we think that people are doing much better than they are, but we can have a ministry of encouragement. Uh, a few weeks before I went on sabbatical, I got a letter from an exchange student. Uh, his name is Josh, and he was here at RAC for five months, and I was very tired, and I was really looking forward to my sabbatical. And he was sitting in the back of a Christian education class that I was uh, talk, speaking at, Uh, downstairs after second congregation, and I saw him not really paying attention. He was like scribbling something at the back, and I was wondering, I wonder what he's doing. But then he came and gave it to me and said, this is my last Sunday. I just wanted to send you a letter, and I'll just read you a few little excerpts. My time at RHC has been a profound blessing for this season over the past five months. I just wanted to write this short note to express my thanks and encouragement. He says a few nice things. And then he says, in particular, I want to affirm three aspects of RHC for which I've been especially grateful as I've reflected over the past week. Firstly, RHC's gospel centrality. Here's a whole paragraph. Secondly, this brings me to my second cause for gratitude, the community here, and the third cause for gratitude. Last, but certainly not least, I'm tremendously thankful for RHC's missional heartbeat. Friends, a, a scribbled letter from an exchange student who I had literally said hi to at the door probably, didn't have a relationship with, became at a a tiring time such a source of encouragement. Friends, we all need encouragement like this. And this is something we can all do in such simple ways. Text messages, voice notes to people, a message in the morning to say that you're thinking of them and praying for them, a scripture that you send to someone, noticing something that they've done that blessed you or encouraged you friends this is what Paul does Paul's like I'm in chains now but what can I do oh, I can write letters I can preach to the gods who are in front of me and I can I can write letters and that's what he does and the gospel friends goes forward paradoxically though Paul is in chains and finally Paul prays Paul prays man We know Paul prayed, because in his letters to the Colossians and the Ephesians and the Philippians, he talks about his prayers all the time. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you making my prayer with joy. Any of those letters you open up, Paul opens with prayer. He's praying and praying and praying. Friends, it is so easy for us to think that the gospel advances by pastors and preachers on stages and people with like big online ministries, friends, we're gonna get to heaven and realize the gospel progressed and advanced mostly through prayers, little invites to colleagues, opening the Bible with other people, and this is something we all can do. I think one of the biggest surprises that's going to happen in heaven is when we, the, the, the curtains are, are opened on the prayers of the saints and what effect they had. And this is something all of us can do. One of of my favorite things that I do, not all the time, do not think I'm more spiritual than I am, but every now and again when I'm running, every now and again, I'll run past someone and I'll just start praying for them. And they're like running toward me and they haven't noticed me. They don't know who I am. And I just start praying for them. I'm like, Lord, I don't know if this person knows you, but won't you save them? Won't you reveal yourself to them? Won't you like cause your face to shine on them? Won't you just bless them? Bless them by turning their heart to you. Help them to know you. If they're a Christian, may they know you more and more. And as I'm running past, I'm like smiling to myself. I'm like, they don't even know what's coming their way. uh, They have no idea. They have no idea. But I'm praying God's going to do this. Friends, the kingdom is, is built by not just Acts ends, not with Paul in front of Nero, and revival in Rome. Acts ends with Paul under house arrest, preaching to ones and twos. Writing letters to small groups of churches scattered around the empire. And praying. What situation are you in this morning, friends? Stay-at-home mums, Stuck at home? In difficult circumstances? Unwell? Just feeling like you have no influence or what can you do? Who can you write to? Who can you pray for? Who can you share the gospel with? Friends, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after this happened, there are not many people around the world who know who Nero was. But Paul's legacy lasts. Ironically, it was because Paul was not trying to leave a legacy for himself. Was Paul the great ruler? No. No. Paul tethered himself to a risen and resurrected king. A king who lives forever. A king who suffered and died for us. And a king whose gospel advances, even through suffering and adversity, in the most paradoxical ways. May God be pleased to let this gospel ring out in our nation through us as we faithfully serve him. Let's close our eyes and pray. Father, we get to the end of Acts expecting so much and we're surprised. To many, this book may end not with a bang, but with a whimper, Lord God. And yet we take courage from it today, knowing that it is precisely through these ordinary means in adversity that you advance your kingdom. Father, I want to pray this morning for my beloved brothers and sisters here. I think, firstly, of some here this morning who may, like Paul, need to have courage put into them and need encouragement. Spirit of God, won't you minister to them now? Remind them of the Father's love. Remind them of our suffering Savior for them and encourage them through this body. Father, for those who are weary or discouraged or feel like they can't do much with their life for your sake, May the way this letter ends put courage into all of us to just live faithfully for you, to plod one step in front of the other. If you've called us to a fertile field, to a barren land, whatever it is, may our eyes be fixed on you and may we follow you faithfully day by day. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church not to take this season that we're in for granted or to assume that maybe that things are going well because we have our things together, Lord God, instead of seeing your sovereign goodness. But then let us respond to that by being faithful, Lord God, to preach your word, to see many come into your kingdom. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name.
0: You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.